Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We've been on this journey through different women of the Bible who are rather infamous. And we started with Mary Magdalene. Last week we talked about Jezebel, both of whom have been inappropriately associated with prostitution. That's sexual sin, very heavily emphasized in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so what we find today is that we actually have a prostitute. This is the first time. And it's a little uncomfortable because one, if you have been working your way through the scriptures and you got through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then you arrive at Joshua, you've received a pretty strong message that prostitution is not good and that people should not be practicing this job, this career choice. Now, in these days, even outside of Israelite culture, when women were not under the protection of a male relative, either their parent, an uncle, uh, a husband, or an older sibling, then oftentimes they didn't have the ability to take care of themselves. And in Israelite culture, that left you with two options. You could beg, or you could become a prostitute. And even though Rahab is not an Israelite, there's this instant discomfort with her job, her identity in this field. And because of this, it actually fuels the story. In the story, we have just come to the point where the people have now entered into the promised land, and Joshua has taken over leading them from Moses, and he is ready to get them into the promised land and settled, but it's not going to be easy. Wouldn't it be nice if God just told you what was going to happen and it just happened? Unfortunately, that's not what happens for Joshua, for God's people, and for most of God's people nowadays. We have to respond and do our own work in order to fulfill what God has promised. And here Joshua has started to do some of that work. He identifies two spies who remain nameless, and he says to them, go in and search out the land, especially paying attention to Jericho. And so they do, they go in, and now there is dispute among the archeological record as to what Jericho actually was at this time. Our scriptures paint it as a rather fortified city with a large wall, a wall so large that homes are actually built into the walls. Hence Rahab is actually living in the wall. But archeological evidence tells us that that might not have been entirely accurate. It tells us that, in fact, it might not have been a fortified city at all. But the story here is about what God can do and the response of God's people. And so whether or not it is literally true, there is significant spiritual truth that we need to gain from the story of the spies and Rahab. And it is this, that they come, and you'll notice that they come into the city of Jericho, and the first thing they do is go to the prostitute's house. It's an interesting little story there, right? Uh, hence, we don't really spend a lot of time in Sunday school talking about this story. It's rather awkward. But as one commentator put it, there is this undercurrent of ambiguous sexual innuendo. I like the way they phrase that. 
a nice way of saying, this is really kind of awkward and we're probably not going to explain it to children. It's kind of a nice way of saying that. And what happens is they go and how they seem to know it is her house, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. How do they know that she is a prostitute and that they can stay there? One of the brilliant things about going to her house is that people would be used to seeing men come and go from the house. And so if strangers from a strange land went to her house, it wouldn't be quite so awkward. And so they go to her house, but immediately they are found out. Word comes to the king of Jericho that spies are in the land. And word, according to Rahab, has already come about God's people. And it's not good news. Already the Canaanites in the promised land are concerned, fearful, threatened, and so they are willing to take action against God's people. So the king sends word to Rahab and says, I know they came to see you. Bring them out. Turn them over to me. And this is a moment of great decision. Will she lie and save them, or will she tell the truth and show loyalty to her king and her country, her people? What will she do? Now, Believers in God have been wrestling with this for generations. Even in this country, you had Christians wrestling with whether or not you expose the fact that a runaway slave is in your house. And in Europe, there were many Christians who wrestled with, do I lie to the Nazis and tell them that there are Jewish neighbors hiding in my home? So Rahab has set up an important decision that many God-fearing believers will wrestle with over the course of human history. And she chooses to lie. She chooses to tell a story. She didn't know where they came from, that's true, they just kind of showed up and then she discovered, but then she says she doesn't know where they went. Never mind that she put them up on the roof and hid them under some flax. But she says, I don't know where they went. They went out, the gates were shut, because that's what you did at night. You kind of locked the city in so that nobody could sneak in in the middle of the night and cause trouble or invade. And so she said, maybe if you hurry, you can go get them. And of course, the response is, yes, we will pursue them. And so then she goes up and she says, look, let me tell you how it is. I know about your God. She's very clear about the stories that are coming and circulating. And it's not just gossip. It is the testimony about what the Lord had done for God's people. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the dread of you has fallen on us. We are afraid. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, whom you utterly destroyed. She's recounting some of the great triumphs that God has had on behalf of God's people in order to keep them safe and keep them moving toward the promised land. And she says, as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted There was no courage left in any of us because of you. And then she gives her testimony. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. And without ever having laid eyes on God, now the people that are standing there before her have seen God go before them in a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. They have seen the presence of the God Almighty settle into the tabernacle every time they move from place to place. They have seen physical evidence of God's presence and providence with them. And they know for a fact that God exists. 
But here is a foreigner. She is not of their religion. She is not of their genealogy. She is not of their ethnicity. And she is in a less than favorable vocation. And she declares sight unseen. I know that your Lord is God. And declares that God reigns in heaven and on earth. Now, Jesus will say, Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And so Rahab seems to be one of the very first who believes sight unseen in God and God's power and what God can do. And so she says, because I believe in your God, because I believe who your God is and I know what your God can do, I'm asking for this in return. I want you to protect my family when you come back. Not if, but when, when you come back here to overthrow this place, take care of my family. And who is her family? Her father and her mother, her brothers and her sisters, and all of their children and their households. Save them because I have been merciful to you. Be merciful to us when your day of power comes. And they accept this. Fine, we will do this for you provided you don't tell anybody the truth that we were here, and you tie a crimson cord in your window. Now, there have been, over time, a lot of associating red lights, uh, red lanterns, and the color red with prostitution. Now, there are some who wonder, is this why? There's, that, that's all colloquialism. There's no way of knowing for sure if that's what it is. But it is interesting, isn't it? Tie the red cord in your window, and we will know that that's the prostitute's house. So they tell her, here are the qualifications to this vow. You can't tell anybody that we were here. You can't disclose what's happened. You have to get all of your people in this house. We can't be responsible if they're out in the street or they're not here. There's no way of distinguishing your family from anybody else, so they must be in this house. This house will become the sanctuary for you and your people. And we will ensure that nothing happens to them. If you don't keep to the oath, then we are liberated from that and we are not held responsible for it. But if anything should happen to your family, then it will be on us. And so she lets them down. She even gives them advice on what to do, go hide in the hills for three days and then proceed on. And then she immediately ties the cord in the window. She's committed. She has already staked her claim by putting the cord in the window. And so they go back, and you know that God's people are kind of waiting, right? I don't know if you know this, but the last time they sent out spies, it didn't go very well. The people were terrified, and then they had to wander for 40 years because they didn't believe that they could take the promised land. And so here they are again. Now these are the children of the people that caused the problem before, but you know they're like, okay, let's just hope it's favorable, and we'll wait and see. And so the two spies return. And as they return, they tell what is happening in Jericho. That Jericho is a walled city, but we have a friend on the inside. And she has saved us, and so we need to save her. Now, this is usually where people pick up the story of Jericho, right? The people will circumnavigate the city multiple times, blow the shofar horn, and then eventually it will fall down. That's you. Now, that we do reenact in Sunday school. That one's okay. We just avoid the whole preamble about Rahab. But here's the interesting thing about this story. Only two people are named, Joshua and Rahab. 
The spies, nameless, faceless people, even the king. No name, just the king of Jericho. Everybody else is not identified but Joshua and Rahab. And this is an interesting name because it will appear in multiple places in the Bible with multiple meanings. It's kind of a name that is also a term. And so what you find is that Rahab is a mythical dragon in Psalm 89 and Isaiah 51. Rahab is used to refer to Egypt as a nation. Rahab is also a region in that area. Rahab, in this case, is a prostitute who helps God's spies. And then Rahab, if we fast forward to the Gospel account of Matthew, is actually listed as an ancestor to Jesus. In the Gospel account of Matthew, it says that Rahab was the mother of Boaz. And for those of you that are aware, Boaz, of course, was the man who ends up marrying Ruth from the, the book of Ruth. And so there is this kind of tie-in. Now, there's about 400 years between when Joshua is coming into the promised land and we get Boaz. There's about 400 years. That would be an incredible length of fertility for Rahab. <laughs> an incredible length of fertility. Is it actually accurate? Who knows? Is it possible there's other people named Rahab? I guess, sure. It's like the word Savannah. Right? So Savannah is a geographical region. It's, it's kind of a construct over in Africa where the grasses are and you have a lot of wild animals and herds that pass through there and eat. Uh, it's also a city in Georgia, right? And then there are plenty of people I have known whose name was Savannah. So Savannah can be like Rahab. It can have a lot of different names. But is this the Savannah or is it the Rahab? We're trying to figure that out. But why? Why is Rahab so important? She's important because she chooses at a pivotal, pivotal moment to do the will of God, not for her own safety. She could have profited. She could have sold them. I'm sure the king would have given her a reward if she had turned them over. She could have raised her esteem in the eyes of her people. She might have even elevated sociologically her family in the eyes of her community. She would have had the opportunity to say, I was loyal to Canaan, I was loyal to Jericho, and so this would have absolutely elevated her in the eyes of the community. But instead, she chooses to do the will of a God that she has never seen, of a people that are not her own. She is convinced that God is God in heaven above and on earth, and so she will at great personal risk to herself and her loved ones choose the unorthodox decision. She will choose to do something very different, and the Bible has preserved her. Now, what's astonishing is that in the scriptures, there's oftentimes, if you can go back to the actual scrolls that were preserved, there's lots of times where the scribes were struggling with what a story said, and they would annotate it, right? You'd go in, and you could see on the margin where it's like, well, this actually means this, or they're not actually talking about that. That's just a metaphor, just so that you would know that they knew that that wasn't what was happening. They needed to, like, get there. You know, like people that have to correct your grammar as you're talking, kind of that inner thing to correct. We want things to be right, and so they need to correct. But yet, you know that they have not changed Rahab. You know there was somebody that was like, can't we like tweak it? Can't we give her a different profession? Maybe she's a tax collector. Just as bad, but not sexual. You know, maybe, who knows? But they didn't, or maybe God didn't allow it. 
Because there is something to be said about a woman who is doing something that the people would never respond positively to. God's people would look at that and go, she was a prostitute. And yet, she's the one that does the right thing. She's the one that not only saves the spies, but gives God's people a chance to fulfill God's will by taking over the promised land. She is the one that is named and remembered. And her story was so powerful that of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them have genealogical narratives in them, the birth narrative, which would be Matthew and Luke, and Luke has no interest in women in the birth narrative. None. Doesn't recount any women in the genealogy. It's son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. No, no women in there. But Matthew is different. Matthew goes back and actually starts to put all of these women, sneak them into the genealogy. And women that most of us, if we could go back in the Bible, would be like, why would you pick her? Like Tamar. Tamar actually dressed up like a prostitute so that she could get pregnant in order to have her child. And they're in the Bible. They're in the genealogy of Jesus. And then you get Rahab. Why would you want Rahab to be a part of the genealogy of Jesus? You get women like Ruth. Ruth, of course, we all beloved, she's beloved to us, but at the time she was a Canaanite. She was a foreign woman. She was a Moabite. And those people don't get along with Israelites. See the Old Testament. And so you have this moment here where Matthew seems to say, sometimes God's work comes through unexpected people. That's where we come in. There is going to be a moment in your life where you get to make a decision and you get to decide what you will do. And your choices are usually, frankly, quite binary. You can choose to do what God would have you do, preserving life at all costs, making sure that you tell the story of the gospel even at your own expense, or you can do what the culture will reward you for doing. You can do what the society's expectations are for you to do. There are lots of things that you could do that would make everybody else happy but would break God's heart. And then sometimes there are the difficult things that we are called to do that make God overjoyed but seem to make everyone else turn against us. And so what we're offered is a crimson cord. We're offered this cord and God says, tie it in the window of your heart so that I know who resides there. Tie it that I might see it. And you have that moment when it comes, and God seems to kind of sprinkle these out in your life, these moments where you can have that decision yourself. What will I choose to do? And what we're being asked to do is hold one end and say, I know who holds the other. I know that God holds the other end of this cord and that we are tethered together and that God will not let me fall into the abyss, that God will not let me be utterly destroyed, but that instead God will some way, somehow, miraculously preserve me. And that is the struggle for us because it's so easy to not do the godly thing. It would have been so easy for Rahab not to save the spies. It would have been better for her in this life not to, because it would have undercut the ability of the Israelites to have the idea that they can come in. 
I mean, if their spies went in and died, the first time they went into the promised land, they didn't die. But this would be absolutely horrible for morale. And there are people of a fragile morale anyway. So to have it come back that the spies, you know, where are the spies? And then they find out that they were slaughtered. This is a ruthless people. Maybe we should just go around Jericho. But instead, that entire story that we have told to children through years of Christian education, through Sunday school programs, through children's worship, through vacation Bible schools, the story of the walls crumbling at Jericho is only possible because of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab. And the Bible wants us to know. And that is what's really compelling here. Because the story is not so much about you know, a woman of the night, but a person, a human being, who was doing something that most God-fearing people looked down upon, saw as irredeemable, looked at her because of her vocation and thought, you too are irredeemable. And yet, she is the one, she is the catalyst for the ability of the story to progress. The taking of the promised land will really start to gather and move forward after the fall of Jericho. This story is a crucial moment in time. And she has made the decision to recognize who God is in heaven and on earth, to act accordingly, and to do so at her own expense. If she had been found out, if suddenly the king was like, what is this cord? What is this? Why is this in your window? If she had been discovered that someone saw her letting them out of the window, if someone in her family had decided because they were too afraid that they would turn her in to save their own skins and the skins of the other family, then it would have been for nothing. But God preserved her. God bound her, not with a crimson cord, but with the words and the promise to those two spies. And this story is interesting because the covenant that is happening here between a Canaanite prostitute and two spies, by the way, that's not exactly a great profession either, right? Two spies and the prostitute from Canaan, you have them binding themselves together for the purposes of saving a people and fulfilling God's will. That's not exactly how we would script that. Can't you think of a better way to get God's people into the promised land? Can't you think of one that maybe we actually could talk to the kids about in Sunday school? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that like all of us, people make mistakes. They do things that God does not approve of. They do things that break God's heart, but God doesn't break God's love for them. Rahab was beloved, and nobody would have expected her, of all people in that city, to be the one by whom the triumph of God would come. They wouldn't have cast her in that role. But God cast her in that role, and she responded. She echoes precisely what all 150 Psalms are about that God is Lord of heaven and on earth. And she owns it. And she tells them, I know who your God is. And now that God is my God. 
And she, maybe she was around to be part of the Israelites after that because she survives. She and her family are now free to integrate into the Israelites. Not that the first five books of the Torah are really supportive of that either, but maybe they made an exception for her. Maybe they did. Maybe this is part of the redemptive part of there's going to be these people who are now with us and we didn't plan on them and they're not exactly like us and we wouldn't have really picked them and let's not talk about what their resume looks like, but here they are. Here they are because in the moment that mattered, they chose God. And that is the struggle for us, is to be inspired, not turned off by Rahab, to recognize that her story is so profound and impactful that the gospel account writer of Matthew was like, I need to put her in. She needs to be a part of this. I mean, if you were going to pick a bunch of women from the Old Testament to put inside the New Testament, very few people would be like, can we find a foreigner? Can we find a prostitute? How about a woman who tricked her father-in-law? Let's get them. Perfect. But Matthew focuses on women who, at the risk of themselves, focus on fulfilling God's will. And is that not the very gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? At the risk of himself, he will do God's will for God's people. And so Rahab, whether she was actually the mother or the ancestor of Boaz, thus the ancestor of King David, and thus the ancestor of Jesus Christ, has a place. And maybe there's even a deeper meaning there that all of us, no matter who we have been in this life and on this earth, we have a place in God's story. That God has carved it out for us. And isn't that what undergirds the entire gospel? Is that God so loved the world that God gave God's only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. And well before the gospel account of John spoke those epic words, those timeless, poignant, powerful words, there was a woman in a job of ill repute who at great risk to herself chose God's way and not the way of the world. May that encourage us in those moments to make the right decision. And the right decision is always the one that reflects God's heart, love, mercy, kindness, and compassion. For that is what Jesus tells us over and over and over again, not just in four gospel accounts of his life, but throughout the New Testament and in the lives of Christians from that point on and forevermore. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.